I'm Mitch Album, and welcome to the Tuesday People podcast, based on the book Tuesdays with Maury, which was published 23 years ago this week. So we're celebrating a bit of an anniversary here on Tuesday People. A happy anniversary to all of you who are listening to us, all of you who have read the book Tuesdays with Maury and inspired by the lessons of my old college professor who was dying from Lou Gehrig's disease but taught a class in the true meaning of life once you know you're going to die, and that's the premise of what we do here every week. Lisa Goitsch is alongside my friend and producer, as always. Hi, Lisa. Happy anniversary, Mitch. Yeah. It's so good, isn't it? Well, uh, I go back to the... August week when Tuesdays with Maury was released, and so many people have asked me about Tuesdays with Maury, the book itself, did you expect Tuesdays with Maury to be the book that it became? Now, they're asking me this question at a point when Tuesdays with Maury is now the biggest selling memoir in, in the history of publishing, and I can't even tell you how many copies it's sold. It's, you know... 18 million, 20 million, I, I, I don't know, but it's in that range there. And so everyone figures that somehow when you published the book, at the beginning you knew exactly that that was going to happen and you were just plotting out where it was going to take you. Well, nothing could be further from the truth. And so on this week, 23 years ago, uh, Doubleday Books put out this small little book called Tuesdays with Maury. Right from the beginning... It was unusual in that, first of all, I only wrote the book to pay Maury's medical bills. And so it wasn't supposed to be some kind of big bestseller by anybody's account. Uh, They gave us just enough money to pay Maury's medical bills, which I gave to him. And I wrote it more as a labor of love than anything else. Uh, and, And maybe that's why it came out the way it did, because I wasn't sitting around saying, oh, how can I make this a best-selling book, or how can I reach... I just wrote what happened, and I had one edict when I was writing Tuesdays with Maury, and that was don't overwrite it. Don't try to make it, with your words, something more literary or flowery than it was. I knew deep down that it was beautiful, just as it had taken place, that Maury's words, my questions, the chemistry that we had, that was enough. And if I could just sort mm-hmm. of recreate what had happened between us, I didn't really need to do anything more than that. So anytime I found myself sort of floating into these, uh, oh, the meaning of life and, you know, and six syllable words and, 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 and wonderful poetry, you know, I said, don't do that. Don't. The book doesn't need it. You're not that good at it. And, and you're going to go into an area that's not necessary. And so I kept constantly, Lisa, as I was writing, it's sort of whittling back. I'd write mm-hmm. 10 pages, but then I'd cut it back to seven and cut it back to five. And, and as a result, when I finished the book, the book was very short. And this is how green I was. I had a contract with Doubleday to write the book. You know, you always make a contract. And somewhere in right. the small print of the contract it said that it would be a book of about 300 pages in length. Sort right. of a standard number, or how many words that was, anything. Well, I was typing on, in those days I was typing, you know, uh, and, and typed out a lot of things double-spaced and triple-spaced and whatever. And so, you know, by the time I had it all triple-spaced and all spaced out and was doing it, it seemed like it was about two or 300 pages. And anyhow, I told the story right. I wanted to tell, and then that was it. So I sent it off to them. 
Uh, and shortly thereafter, I got a phone call back from someone at the publisher saying, we have a bit of a problem. And I said, well, what's the problem? And they said, well, this book isn't 300 pages. When we print it, it's not going to be 300 pages. I said, well, what will it be? And they said, it's more going to be like 150 pages. And I said, really? Like I underestimated by a half. And I said, well, that's all I have to say. I mean, I really don't want to extend it. I don't want to make it anything different. That I said what I wanted to say, and that's it. And to their credit, they were very nice. They said, all right, don't worry about it. We'll just make it a smaller book. And so Ah. one of the reasons that Tuesdays with Maury is this very small little book is because if they had made it a full-size book, it would have been so thin, it would have looked like a comic (laughs) book. And so they made right. it small, so it had a little bit of heft to it, even 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 small. There's not much to it, and that's why Tuesdays with Maury is as small as it was. So, and that's now so all great. all of the books that I have written since, because that became a signature book for me, ha- are the same size now. Like I mm-hmm. I've been I'm like uh, the Lilliputians uh, with Gulliver <laughs> uh, of the literary set. All my books are just these little mini things. Tiny Even the books. ones that are longer, they just keep them at that size because they say, well, that's what people are used to with you. You know, Tuesdays with Moria was that size, so all the other right. books have to be that size. And so I, I am now, you know, I'm, I'm looking at one of my books, and Lisa and I are, are, are looking at each other on, on Skype, and I'm, I'm looking at one Is of them. Is Frankie Presto um, also yeah, the fr- same Frankie size? Frankie Presto, yeah, but it's a really long a book, one. so it's just fat. Yeah. Yeah, but it's short, <laughs> short and fat. So I, this is like, I don't know, about six, seven inches high. That's it. And I can't, I'm now not allowed to have any books that are taller than six or seven inches. <laughs> just this. And so uh, that's... Yeah, but it suits, yeah. it suits the books. It suits your style of writing. And people come to recognize that as your thing. And by the way, I think these days people don't have that much of an attention span for mm-hmm. reading as they once did. So I think some books are just better suited as tiny little treasures. Yeah. You know? Well, I, I think people do like when they have a small book and they can just sort of get through it and it fits in their purse <laughs> or their mm-hmm. small bag. Uh, but it wasn't, it was, I wasn't being very clever. I, I had no idea that that's what I needed to do. But that's how green I was about the whole process. And so when the book came out in August, uh, like we are right now, it was not expected to do much. If you expect a book to do a lot, you don't release it in August. It's, August is right. not like a big publishing month. November, big publishing month. The March, uh, May for summer books. Not August. August, everybody's busy going back to school. And it took a long time for Tuesdays with Maury to catch on. But it caught on because people just sort of read it and passed it on to people and passed it on to people. And I'm not sure that Tuesdays with Maury would succeed today under the way that it was published back then because... There aren't as many small bookstores and, 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 and word-of-mouth things. There's more the Amazons and the big, big blockbuster types of things that get yeah. published. But Tuesdays with Morris succeeded because so many people just read it and passed it on to somebody or a bookstore owner said, hey, we got this book and a lot of people have been reading it. You should try it. And they hand-sold hand it to people. And that's how it ultimately started to spread and became uh, much, much bigger than I could have ever anticipated. And I'm sure Maury would have ever anticipated and so for today's program, seeing as it's an anniversary or birthday of sorts, I uh, went back and, and noticed and re- listened through the tapes of Maury and Mai's meetings, which, of course, I, I taped almost all of them. And that has become a big underpinning of our podcast here because we're able to listen to some of those tapes. And it was interesting that at birthdays, 
apparently, uh, these were indicators to Maury early on that his life was going to take a major turn. We've all seen the headlines in the news of how someone lost their life in an act of cold-blooded murder. And while it's sad and grabs your attention, most people go on with their day without giving it another thought. But have you ever stopped to think about the life of the person at the center of the news story? They were more than just a headline or a statistic. They were someone's loved one or friend. I'm Mike Morford, and my podcast, The Murder of My Family, dives into some of those stories to help listeners get to know the person who was lost and how their death affected those closest to them. Listen to The Murder of My Family everywhere you listen to podcasts. There are well over 100 episodes to binge on now. Listen to this cut uh, about when he began to notice some of the early signs that he had Lou Gehrig's disease, which, of course, at the time, he, he didn't know what it was. I was going to a friend's 80th birthday mm-hmm. party. Mm-hmm. I noticed myself saying to myself, I have a hard time walking, so drive me up to the front door of where the restaurant, which is party, is being held. When you say hard time walking, physically your legs hurt or you were just getting, you were tired. breathing hard? Uh-huh. Got very tired uh-huh. after half a block uh-huh. or less, okay. which is not my normal right. way. So that was one of the early signs that there was something wrong. Maury felt tired. Long walks would leave him tired, and he had always been a a pretty good walker. But then things got more serious, and once again, it was a birthday event at which he noticed it. Listen. I remember going to a birthday party of friends, and I loved to dance. I found I was having difficulty dancing. I was stumbling a lot. Mm Mm-hmm. Were you dancing with somebody or by yourself? No, it's hard. Again, we didn't stop and ask, what's this all about? Strange. When was that, the dancing? I would say probably in 93, 4 to 93. Before, I, before this Christmas thing that you're talking yeah. about? Yeah. Uh-huh. Where were you dancing? Where? Yeah. You said you were at a party somewhere? It was a church. In, with a party. In Boston? Water. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. Brookline. Brookline. And what, were you stepping on Charlotte's toes? or? No, I just, I just stumbled on the uh-huh. floor. I couldn't make the step. Right. So that was a second sign that something was wrong. Maury's dancing had been hindered, and as Maury would later say to me, because he so loved to dance, Mitch, I never fell when I danced. Uh-huh. And so he knew something was That's wrong. Sad. And he began to, yeah, it is sad. In fact... Uh, to lose you, the one lo- thing you love, you yeah. know? And in the play, Tuesdays with Maury, which we did off-Broadway and has now been done hundreds and hundreds of productions around the world, uh, we wrote in, myself and Jeffrey Hatcher, the, who wrote the play together, uh, we wrote in scenes of Maury dancing at the beginning and, mm-hmm. and at the very end uh, because it was so critical to him. And... Uh, it was, you know, Maury loved, loved, loved to dance. He used to go to this place called Dance Free in Cambridge, which was like a converted church 
where every Wednesday or Thursday night you would pay $5 to get in, which I never understood because if it's called dance free, shouldn't it be free? I mean, why do you have to pay $5 to get in? But he would go in and he would just, he'd have a towel around his neck and he would just start dancing with whoever was there, a lot of co-eds and college kids. And, and uh, you know, he'd do the rumba, the merengue, the tango, all those kinds of dances, but they would be playing uh-huh. rock and roll music at the time. So he would be, uh-huh. you know, dancing those dances, but to rock music. And nobody really had any idea that he was this learned professor. They just thought that he was this guy with a sweatsuit or a towel or whatever. And and he loved it. And and that's how he went through life, just experiencing joy like that. Uh, And and then, of course, in his mid-70s, he began to notice these changes. And they began to rob him of very simple things, the ability to walk uh, without getting tired, the ability to dance, ultimately the ability to stand up, and and then more gradually the ability to brush his hair or button his shirt or take a shower or eventually, as he would say, even wipe my own ass. And all of these things were lost to the battle with Lou Gehrig's disease until by the time I came to see him, he was in a wheelchair. He could still move his arms somewhat. Thank goodness he could still speak albeit mm-hmm. you know, it was difficult. But many times with ALS, one of the first things that goes is your, your vocal cords. And um, with that, then it's really hard to communicate. And so God did a favor with Maury. You wouldn't say so for someone who got ALS, but if Maury couldn't talk, he wouldn't want to be here. And he was able to speak really close right up to the very end uh, and get his points across and do his teaching, of course, with me. And so as... ALS began to rob Maury of its of the basic dominoes of life that you and I consider to be normal. Put on your shoes, can't do it. Put on your socks, can't do right. it. Pull up your pants, can't do it. Brush your teeth, can't do it. Brush your hair, can't do it. Tie a tie, can't do it. Wipe your rear end, can't do it. Feed yourself, can't do it. Drive a car, can't do it. Just ticking off, ticking off, ticking off, ticking off. Right. But as he lost those abilities... Something else came out in Maury, and it's the lesson that I want to sort of impart to you on this anniversary of the publication of the book. Maury discovered that he could express himself in a way that he never could before, because before he had been worried about how people would take certain things, how they would interpret what he was saying, what they would think of him, and suddenly... With ALS and a death sentence basically hanging over him, his inhibitions sort of fell to the wayside. And the Maury that many people have come to know through the book or through the Nightline episodes with Ted Koppel when he talked, that wasn't necessarily Maury prior to the illness. He might not have talked about himself or his own feelings. He was always interested in other people's feelings. But suddenly... He was willing to share what he was feeling himself because he got this death sentence. And while, of course, a death sentence is is entirely awful and you wouldn't wish it on anybody, my observation is facing our mortality, which none of us want to do, still brings out certain things in us and certain opportunities in us that we are not prepared to do when we're not really accepting our mortality. And in many ways, some of these things are quite good. They're quite positive. Right. They enable you to do certain things that you just would have held back from. Listen to Maury explain how 
a therapist friend of his would always say to him that he kept the best part of himself to himself, and this therapist had a very unique phrase for it. Listen to this here. Why do you hide your light under a bushel? Why do you hide your light under a bushel? Bushel, like a bushel on a peck? Bushel meaning that I've got a lot of gifts and I don't display them as fully as I could. Mm -hmm. I'm a pretty modest guy. Mm -hmm. I hide my abilities, my contributions, or whatever I have to offer that's good, I don't, I'm not a big salesman for them. Right. That's why this last year has been so different. Because yeah. previous I was pretty modest, I think, about yeah. what I did. Is it accurate to say that once you face, or we're looking at the worst thing that you can look at in life, which is your own mortality, that suddenly whatever inhibitions you had towards not letting your light shine didn't seem very big anymore? I mean, I is, that, is that where it came yeah, from? Yeah, yeah. Well, I felt that I had something to offer, mm-hmm. and I should do it. Mm-hmm. And I let my inhibitions stand in the way. Mm-hmm. So I did it. Has this been the most, um, the most uh, outward Exposed. year of your life? Exposed, yes. Absolutely. The most exposed, the most demonstrative, the most public, the most uh, uh, overtly opening myself up to people I don't know as well as people I do. Whereas before I was was partially so, but not fully so by any means. What type of things inhibited you in the past? I think it was a deep psychological thing. I'm not sure. I think it had to do a lot with if you expose yourself, you're liable to get hurt. Think about that sentence. If you expose yourself, you're liable to get hurt. How many times have you, dear listeners, how many times have you bit your tongue, not really expressed yourself, not really allowed yourself to be understood, not really shared some of your problems, or some of your thoughts because you didn't want to get hurt. You didn't want somebody to think badly of you. You didn't want somebody to think you were weak. You didn't want somebody to think you were vulnerable. So you just kept your problems to yourself and you kept your thoughts to yourself. How many times did you not offer advice to someone because you said, well, maybe they're not going to take it the right way or I don't, I don't really want to offer it to them or then they won't like me. Maybe they won't be my friend anymore. I'm going to get hurt. It's another form of getting hurt. How many times have you held back really what was almost instinctual to you to to speak because you were afraid of the consequences, you were afraid of getting hurt? We are the real Brady Brady Bros. Brady Brothers from the TV show Brady Bunch. I'm Barry Williams. And I'm Christopher Knight. I played Greg. And uh, who were you again? I played Peter. We've decided that we're going to do a podcast around episodes of The Brady Bunch. We're going to use it as a prism to look back to our experience doing the show and why The Brady Bunch is still popular. Have a sunshine day. We are The Real Brady Bros. Last week, we spoke about letting your conscience and your subconscious be your guide. And this week, 
you see how that can manifest itself if you are willing to sort of be open and honest. So here's Maury. Basically, they say to him, you have this deadly disease. You're going to have maybe a couple years left to live, maybe. And he decides, all right, well, what am I going to do? Am I just going to shrivel up and be this person who says, I don't want to die, I don't want to die every single day? Or am I going to make the most of the last two years I have? And that's exactly what he did. And so he started to speak about what he was going through, about his observations about dying, about his observations about how he had lived, about his observations about what really becomes clear when you get a death sentence and what doesn't, what really matters and what doesn't, what he thought about friendships, what he thought about marriage, what he thought about teaching, what he thought about career, money, society. He, all these thoughts began to formulate and he began to express them. Why? Because he wasn't afraid anymore of what somebody would think. As he says here in this cut, what are the consequences there aren't any consequences that are going to be right. worse than the consequence I already have, which is I have a terminal illness. So listen to his take on it. This past year, you know, just don't care? Is it, is it uh, what's, what's changed? How can it hurt me? Huh. How can I get hurt? Whatever you do to me, it's already done. Right. So I can do anything I really want to do that I feel is good without the fear of the consequences. Because the consequences have already been set. So if somebody wants to shoot me because they think, you know, I'm saying things that they don't want to hear, what difference makes? I'm I'm dead a little sooner than I thought I would be. It's the same kind of freedom. Yeah, it's a fascinating thought. how How would your life have been different if you could have had the cognizance that you have over the past 12 months but have been able to apply it for years and years instead of just a year. It could have been, could have been very different. But the, but the, the recognition of uh, you know, what could happen to me, you know, what really could happen, what, what can they do to me, uh, you could use that in, in healthy life. I mean, that doesn't have to be uh, just a you know uh, end of the line conclusion. That could be if you wanted to have that attitude. Uh, you, why not have it all throughout life? You know? Because our little egos want to go on living, and you could say, "Yeah, I'm ready to die." Very few people really are, because they want to go on. That life impulse is strong, right. so you don't want them to take unnecessary risks. Right. And I think that's what prevents us. Sure, the Buddhists say that you should be prepared to die at any moment Mm -hmm. because life is vulnerable. If you have that attitude, then you will do whatever you want to do without fear. Mm -hmm. But most people are afraid. Mm -hmm. Their little egos are saying, oh, be protected. Be protected. Be protected. How many times do we say that to ourselves in our lives? We're at work, something is clearly wrong, or injustice was done, don't say anything. Protect your job, protect your position. You're at a social setting, somebody says something that's really offensive or really insensitive, or they're going down a path that you know is going to be bad, and they're telling you about it, and you don't say anything. We're at a dinner party, I don't want to 
I don't want to mess everything up. I don't want rock people to start. Right. I don't want to rock the boat. I don't want anybody looking at me uh, and be protected, be protected. How many times, even when you you know, go to a doctor or go to a specialist or go to a, someone who repairs the car or someone who you feel has more knowledge than you in a particular area and you have some questions or you have some doubts Ugh. about what they're saying, but you don't say, and I, I don't want to rock the boat. I don't want them to think, you know, next time I come back, they won't like All of that for Maury went away when he suddenly realized life is short yep. and I don't have to pull these punches. Well, the truth is, Lisa... Life could be short for all of us. You know, all of us could be gone tomorrow. We don't know. Mm -hmm. We don't tomorrow, as they say, is not promised to anybody. You're not guaranteed to be living X number of years. So while I'm not saying that people should be mean or suddenly say, well, I don't care. I'm going to die soon anyhow. Soon might be three months. Soon might be three years. Soon might be three decades, but eventually I'm going to die and I'm not going to care about it. So let me just say anything I feel like. You're fat. You're ugly. You're stupid. That's <laughs> that's not the kind of freedom that we're talking about. No. But the freedom to express your thoughts, to talk about yourself, to open yourself yes. up as Maury did to other people, to share stories about yourself. Maybe it's with your spouse. Maybe it's with your children. Maybe it's with friends. If you have been a person who has sort of buttoned up a lot of your feelings, a lot of your personal stories, um, a lot of your trials and tribulations, that you just say, you know, you want your friends to understand you, you want your loved ones to understand you, but you don't want to trust them with your secrets. Right. You don't want to trust them with what's happened to you. And then you get mad when they're not, when they're insensitive to you. Well, you haven't shared the details that would have made them more sensitive to you. Mm -hmm. And that's the kind of thing that Maury stopped worrying about when he got sick. He just stopped worrying about it. Come in, he would say, come in and talk to me. Be, be prepared to hear the truth. I'll tell you what you want to know about what it's like to die. I'll tell you what you, know, you want to know about mortality. But be prepared to hear me talk about it. Be prepared to, I remember when he said to me, uh, um, I have to, when I pee, I have to fill up this beaker. He had a little mm -hmm. beaker there. You know, I remember when I first got there, it was empty. And I said, oh, is that, you know, for water? You drink water? He said, no, I, I, I pee in that. <laughs> I said, well, I'm glad I didn't pick it up and pour myself a glass of water. And he said, y you know, I have to pee into a, a, a beaker now. Maybe you want to hold it for me. And I remember this was like the first time I, I had gotten there. And I said, uh, he said, ah, we can wait. We can wait. You don't have right. to hold it just yet. Second you could see date. I was That's for the yeah, second, second date. date right? <laughs> you could see I was uncomfortable with that. Uh, but he didn't. He wasn't uncomfortable. He wasn't uncomfortable right. with sharing that with me because what? what as he said, what are you going to do to me? You're going to say, "Oh, you disgust me. I don't want to be your friend anymore." And right. as it turned out, everybody loved him for his honesty. Yeah. Everybody loved him for his honesty and for his vulnerability. And those last two years, from the time he got the diagnosis to the time that he died. Those two years were the most honest, the most forthcoming that he had ever been in his life. Now, should it really take a terminal illness for us to be willing to speak our mind or to seek love or to be vulnerable? No, we, we shouldn't need a, a terminal illness to do any of those things, but frequently we do because we're so busy kind of protecting ourselves, protecting our future, protecting you know, I don't want to do that. I don't want to risk a career move. And I've got this many years left that I have to work. And I, I, and we have all these justifications 
for not being who we really are deep down, not sharing that with the world. And I think one of the reasons that people came to Tuesdays with Maury is because they could sense here was a guy who really was not afraid to lay it on the line as to who he was when he was talking to a student and, and, and for a book. He was not afraid to just say, this scared me, I was worried about this, I wasn't that good at this. He, he was, as he said, he had nothing to lose. I think when people go through life with nothing to lose, they're very attractive to other people. People follow them. There's a sense of like, wow, they're, they're able to look danger in the face and just keep marching, so let me march alongside them. And in point of fact, it's not necessarily you're looking danger in the face. It's that you have recognized that we are all mortal. We're all going to die at some point. My life could be longer than yours or shorter than yours, yours longer than mine or shorter than mine, but there'll be a, a finite finish of them. And since we know that there's going to be a finite finish, would you rather, once you get to the finish and you're about to expire from this earth, would you rather have led your life saying, hey, I was honest, I told people how I felt about myself, about them, we didn't hide any secrets, I'm not going to my grave thinking I never told anybody you know, that I was whatever, vulnerable, I loved yeah. them, I did whatever. You know, that's, that's sort of the acid test for this thing. And, uh, you know, it shouldn't take a terminal illness to get us to that point, but it kind of often does. Because short of that, we're not really willing to be that honest. We're not really willing to take those chances and say what we mean and espouse the philosophies that we want because we're worried about what others are going to think. Hi, this is Rachel Yucatel, and I'm here to invite you to listen to my podcast, Misunderstood with Rachel Yucatel. This podcast delves into the lives of those who have been reduced to a single headline. Each episode will take a closer look at the stories of those who are on a mission to change their narrative. Join me as we uncover the truth behind the misconceptions, shed light on the stories of those who have perhaps been wrongfully portrayed, explore the complexities of the human experience, and celebrate the power of second chances. Who doesn't love a good comeback story? Yeah, I wonder if that's also why as people get older, you start getting more honest and you kind of lose your filtering system, you know, whether you're sick or not. Um, you know, people always talk about, you know, all oh, those crazy old people, they just go spewing stuff, you know, um, but I'm turning into that person where I know I'm much more honest in my 50s, now almost 60s, right. than I was in my 20s and 30s. Right. If I don't like something, I'm not as afraid to say, I don't like that, or I don't want to go there, or... I'm going to stay home tonight or mm -hmm. whatever the whatever the situation is, you know. Mm -hmm. um, I got invited to go to a dinner party. It's a long story short, but I won't get into it. But I just got out of the hospital. I'm really weak right now. It's not a good time for me to be around people, especially right. in a group setting. I sat with it for a couple of days and I'm like, no, I am not comfortable. I typed off an email this morning and I just said, I am not comfortable right. going to this dinner. And you're okay in my saying 20s, that. Yeah, in my twenties, I would have gone. gone. Yeah, I would have sat there. I would have been completely uncomfortable and would have gotten COVID nineteen. Yeah, I would have gotten COVID nineteen, yeah. and I would have taken one for the team because right. that's how I was. But now it's like no. I think we can we can just start being more honest and, and without fear, you know. Right, and, and I honestly, think that's what without, he was saying. That's exactly what he was saying. So honest without fear doesn't mean that 
I hate those shoes. I'm just going to tell you I hate those shoes. Oh, it, it doesn't and mean there's hurting. no manners. Yeah. Right. And, and, and or don't hurting hurt other people's people feelings. Intentionally. That's right. Yes. Don't That's hurt right. people intentionally. But don't hold back on who you are. Uh, and imagine, you know, if, if, you, if you could put yourself in Maury's position and you find yourself saying, you know, heaven forbid if I one day went to the doctor and they told me I had ALS and basically I had two years left to live. I really, I, I would do this and I would do that and I would tell people this and that and I would stop doing this and I never have anything to do with that. If there's a long list of like things that you would change if you suddenly got a terminal illness, you should probably look at how you're living now healthily because it shouldn't right. be a terminal illness that changes you. It should be you doing what you think is right to change you because you think it's right. And if you're not being who you want to be, you should change that, not because, well, I'll wait till I get a terminal illness and it doesn't matter because I'll be dead in a few years anyhow. You should do it because it's the right thing for you to be who you are. And we shouldn't be afraid. We shouldn't worry about our egos. We shouldn't worry about, um, we shouldn't even worry about, as Maury says here in, in, in this last cut, we shouldn't even worry about whether this might happen to me in the future because you don't know what the future is. You only know right. where you are right now. And Maury was talking about not having those fears, those inhibitions about his ego or wanting to be liked by everybody and how that made his feel now. Listen to what he said. Do you think that you've lost a lot of those fears in the last year? I think so, yeah. And it's liberating. Absolutely, it is very liberating. That's, again, that tension of opposites. On the one hand, I'm dying. On the other hand, I'm liberated. Mm -hmm. You know, and they have to go together, it seems. Mm -hmm. or at least they did. So here I am, liberated to the end, so to speak. Be a worthwhile message to bring to people, don't you think? Absolutely. If you could find a way to live in the moment, or, or you know, uh, uh, in full cognizance and sensitivity to your surroundings, before you were looking, you know, at the end of the road right in front of you, but while while everything was still possible, you know. Precisely, and some people manage that. But it takes a lot of understanding. It takes a lot of not letting your unconscious emotions get in your way, which is what it is most of the time. Mm -hmm. But that is the message. Live as fully and deeply as you can mm -hmm. in the moment, which doesn't mean you ignore the future or the past. Mm -hmm. But all you have is right now. Right. So whatever you do, is right now. Whatever you do is right now. There is no guarantee that you have another 40 years that you have to therefore protect. Just as there's no guarantee that tomorrow will be your last day. But if you can somehow mesh those ideas and live the next 30 years the same way you would live the next 30 minutes or 30 days, you will have achieved something very, very important. And Maury achieved it as a result of the disease. He had an honest quality to him to begin with, but he was really became dedicatedly honest once he got the disease. And he, 
He really wanted to make sure he was living every day to its fullest. And as it turned out, for those two years, he, he got a fuller life, even though he was limited in his physical capacity, than he probably had had in the 76 years prior to it. That's so wonderful. Like, it just seems like that would be, that's, that's what you need to do at the end, I think. Don't, don't you think? Was he ever honest with you about you? Did he ever oh, yeah. say things to you that made you think? Yeah. That oh, might have yeah. been a bit uncomfortable? That's the very first visit. He asked me some things about my work or whatever, and there was some tumult going on at work at the time. And, and uh, when I was about to leave, he said, I'm paraphrasing here, but he said, Mitch, dying is only one thing to be unhappy about. Living unhappily is another one. And, mm. you know, he was being very direct with me. You know, yeah. uh, he was basically saying, you don't sound like you're very satisfied with your life. And right. he was comparing his problems to my problems and putting them on a, a, a similar level. You know, dying's only one thing to be afraid of. Living unhappily wow. is another. So, yeah, right from the, right from the start, you know, he called me on anything that I did. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I miss that kind of clarity. I miss that kind of honesty. Yeah. And I miss, you know, again, if Maury had been a better patient, I don't think I would miss him the way I'm missing him now. And there certainly wouldn't have been a book, Tuesdays with Maury, because what would we have said? If he just said, right. no, no, I, I'm, all, I'm all right. I'll be all right. Just let me sleep. I'll be all right. I don't want to think about death or dying or things like that. I, it's depressing. Let's just focus on positive. What are we going to do tomorrow? And well, what television show should we watch or anything? And, right. and it would have been a very dull book. He yeah. did think very deeply about all of it. And he did wonder, you know, how long he would be around and how long could he contribute so um, I, I think that he was, he was definitely, uh, definitely interested in making every day count and being truest to himself once he got sick. And I think the lesson for today is, and we're talking about anniversaries and birthdays, and you know, well, you don't need the an anniversary of a of a bad thing to be your inspiration. You don't need your birthday to be the inspiration. Just start by playing that little game with yourself and saying, well, if, if I had a terminal illness right now and I knew I had six months left to live, what would I be doing? How would I be talking? Who would I be saying? And if it's right. markedly different from how you're living right now, then ask yourself, why? Are you living an inhibited yeah. life? Are you living, are you working at something you really don't care about? If, if, if your unen, unencumbered future looks remarkably different than your current present, then there's probably something wrong because you don't want to yeah. be where you are right now. You want to be someplace else in that future. So mm. on this birthday uh, of sorts of Tuesdays with Maury, we see how birthdays played an integral part. Red Letter Days played an integral part in Maury's life from the birthdays that he participated in when he was younger to uh, the birthdays that he had attended when he was older and noticed his decaying to yeah. this now birthday of the of the book Tuesdays with Maury and the lessons that we celebrate. There's much to be gleaned there. We do this every Tuesday here on Tuesday People Podcast, wetuesdaypeople.com on the internet to find out about our podcast, to send us any notes you like or any comments you like. We always appreciate those. And... We do this once a week, which means before you turn around, we'll be right out again. 
Until then, with Lisa Goitsch, this is Mitch Album saying, we'll see you next Tuesday. Thank you for listening to Tuesday People. To be part of our conversation, join the Tuesday People community at wetuesdaypeople.com. Subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss an episode and share it with your friends. We look forward to having you with us every Tuesday because, after all, we're Tuesday People.